This week's episode of the Screenwriter's Rant Room is brought to you by avgearguy.com. If you have any photos or documents that you need to scan or videotapes or audio tapes or film rolls that you need to import into your computer, check out avgearguy.com. If you mention the name of this podcast, when you order, you'll get 5% off and a portion of your order will go to help support the rant room. All these formats degrade over time and are sitting ducks in the case of fire or theft. Why not convert it all to digital? All of your memories could be stored safely on the cloud or on a hard drive that fits in your pocket. AVGearGuy.com has over 30 years of experience with all kinds of media, digital and analog, and they can accept orders from anywhere in the United States. Don't forget to mention the Screenwriter's Rant Room and get 5% off your order. For more details, visit their website at avgearguy.com. I'ma say what I feel And I promise to keep it real Welcome to the Rant Room Well, you gotta be a rider till your fears are diminishing the doubts are behind ya. It's hard to grind and the business got me stressed in the rent room. We let that shit up off our chest. You know the street nerds got no time for no caca. Sass in class, yes, that's Mr. Bolakaja. Never have to guess when you're listening to Hilliard. He gon' bring more game than a shark playing billiards. It's all about the crap of screenwriting. It's exciting when you turn an outline into something enlightening. Your pen and words are like bullets in a gun. Write what you feel, say what you want. Welcome to the Screenwriter's Rant Room, where we talk about screenwriting, pop culture, story, craft, shit like that. I can't do it as well as Hilliard can, and you can probably tell since Hilliard's not talking, this is another bottle episode, episode 8. It's Chris Derrick, uh, the filmmaker. Uh, I have some exciting news to announce to people, but I can't do it as of yet. Um, but we'll let you know shortly. So here we are today. Uh, Trump is not dead yet from the coronavirus, which is interesting news for us. Coronavirus is still rolling strong. Um, and production has gone back a lot, you know, um, I'm supposed to talk to my boy, Carl Seaton. I know you're listening, Carl. You're supposed to call me when you finish up with that uh, uh, Batgirl episode or Batwoman episode. We, you know, I'm waiting to hear what's up, what's up with that. Anyway, um, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, you know, a few things. So this is going to be kind of like a filmmaker episode to, to a certain degree. Um, but... Let's see, I watched Francis Coppola's Cotton Club Encore. It's really fascinating to see him go back and recut these movies in the ways that he wanted to do it at the time, and he didn't. Uh, he's getting pressured by a lot of people. I mean, and, and they're actually making a movie. Barry Levinson is making a movie about how he made The Godfather based on a script that was on the blacklist about four or five years ago. Um, it's interesting, you know, Francis Coppola's career is crazy, one of the most talked about filmmakers, um, but so his work is so damaged. Um, but it's interesting to watch Cotton Club Encore. It's a really, really fantastic, fantastic number 
by Lynette McKee as she sings Stormy Weather. Um, they cut it out. It's interesting why they cut it out. They cut it out because they were told there's too many black people and singing in a movie about the Cotton Club. But they cut that scene out in particular because the other song she sings is part of a a, uh, a series. It's part of a montage where there's a lot of super musicians going on. And what he did and what Coppola did at the time is he shot all that as like it's it's multi exposure. It wasn't created optically. It was created like in camera. So they couldn't cut that stuff out because it was all kind of built in. It was baked into the negative. Something they would never let you do again today. They just don't let this stuff happen. And it's interesting, aesthetically, it looks better when it's done that way, done optically, than opposed to the composites and the lowering opacity that you see now. Um, I don't know, it's just that, that whole thing with the film and uh, that there's a different aesthetic to it that is sadly going away. But you should see the movie. It's available for Prime members if you have Amazon Prime. Check that out. I appreciate it. It's interesting to see Gregory Hines uh, dance again. It's been a long time since he died. You know, he was in a movie I loved called called Running Scared, him and Billy Crystal, this uh, cop movie um, in the mid-'80s. I don't know. It's, it's one of my favorite movies from the 80s. No one talks about it. It, it actually might not be that good of a movie. Uh, I don't remember it that well, but it's a fun movie. It's really fun for one of those kind of buddy cop movies. I mean, Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal are like playing those roles that were signified by uh, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. Um, I don't know. It's ch- you know, check it out. I guess it's it's before *Lethal Weapon*, I believe, but after *48 Hours*. So it kind of fits within that what they're trying to do. Um, but you take a look at *Cotton Club*. It's just like you know, like what Cope was doing directing wise. Um, and how he's getting these film, you know, these these moments of music on screen without doing a musical. Um, interesting kind of, you know, performance from Richard Gere. Uh, I guess he plays it, the cornet himself in that, so that's really cool. Um, but more to the point, though, what I want to talk about is, you know, I'm preparing to write a spy movie, and I've been watching some spy movies of late. And particularly, I was watching uh, the past three Mission Impossible movies. And it's interesting to see, because I remember loving Ghost Protocol when I saw it. That's the one directed by Brad Bird, um, the guy who, who did Iron Giant and The Incredibles. And when I watched it again now, after seeing the two done by Chris McQuarrie, I kind of was like, these mo- this movie doesn't have the same kind of like zip as what Macquarie does, and it's like, and it's it's interesting to think that, it, that Mission Ghost Protocol, Mission Before, is the first film, the live action film that Brad Bird does, but it kind of feels like an animated film. It's kind of staticky the way an animated film is, and there's some humor in there which feels a little out of place compared to the other installments. I mean, it's a good movie. And it has that great scene in Dubai and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's fascinating, but then, but it didn't have the same kind of like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, like this this grip of your your muscles that you get in the subsequent films. So that's Rogue Nation and Fallout, which are both directed by Chris McQuarrie, and I guess he's doing the next two or next three, um, doing them now, or he was doing them before uh, the pandemic. But, it's, but I was saying to myself, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Ghost Protocol, I mean, sorry, Rogue Nation wasn't Macquarie's first film 
directing. It was a big film. You know, he had that little hiccup in his career when he did Wave the Gun after catching in his chips from the Oscar win of Usual Suspects. And he did Wave the Gun, and it did not do well. And he was much reviled, and he didn't have a... He didn't have his... That was 2000. He went eight years without a credit. The next credit was, um, was Valkyrie, which he just wrote. But he directed... Tom Cruise. Interesting story about how he got a chance to work with Tom Cruise because of Valkyrie. It was supposed to be his way back to directing, and he didn't get a chance to do it. He gave it to Tom Cruise uh, through something else. Um, you know, he had, he worked on another film that didn't go. Um, the Tourist that Tom was supposed to be involved in. So they did Valkyrie, and uh, Brian Singer directed it. But there's a but there's a so the first thing that he directs when he's back in the director chair after getting back into the good graces of Hollywood is the Jack Reacher one, the first Jack Reacher movie. And it's really interesting. It's he has a he has a, a philosophy about filmmaking and what you do when you're a director. What you do when you're a writer, you know, because you're you're making movies not to be read. You're making movies to be made, you know. And there's and that's a whole different like mindset. And he talked about this really a lot on this one podcast. Uh, Brian Copple, Brian Copleson's the moment. And um, but it's interesting to watch Jack Reacher and see how assured as a director, as an action film director is Chris McQuarrie and you know he hadn't done a movie in eight years and you know it's just interesting to see what he is able to bring like how precise he is and how he knows how to get these these slight little camera adjustments for 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 subjectivity and it's interesting because you see that's all lacking in the Brad Bird movie and all you know, and whatever. So, so maybe you know, it's one, it's one more movie under your belt. But Brad Bird, like I said, it just feels more, more like his animation, you know. And then, so it's just, so it's interesting to look at Reacher, Rogue Nation, Fallout as the path of filmmaking uh, as a director. What and as a writer too, what Macquarie is able to do. What why, what's he able to bring to the story? How he's not following these conventions. He's just going. How do I flat out entertain you? Like every choice is more about is about entertaining you as the viewer. He's trying to get you so immersive into what's going on, and it's very apparent and very aware of what he's trying to do. In you just see it from just some of the opening, just the way the opening shots are, the opening montage sequencing is done in the for the shooting in Jack Reacher and it's just it's interesting now I was watching it I also watched I wanted to watch the Mission Impossible films too because you know I thought those those movies were really out of control with their action sequences like Fallout and and Rogue Nation had some wild wild action sequences but I went back and watched Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace uh, pretty much back to back, not same day, but like, but but one day and then like on a Friday night and then on a Sunday afternoon, and I really, really hadn't seen, I hadn't seen those two Bond movies since I saw them in the theater, so as whatever, fifteen years ago, they still hold up really well. Um, the action is so crackerjack, and it's interesting because 
I kind of feel like Quantum of Solace is like a maligned movie when it shouldn't be. And I didn't like it as much when I saw it in the theater. And I realized what it is. I realized that when you, that those two movies are like are they're they're like a single story. They're it's you know it's like Christina Royale happens and it ends, and then the very next afternoon, the is you know that's when kind of a solace begins so there's really no break but the audience had like at least a maybe a two year gap between what you know between Casino Royale and then and then between Quantum of Solace and the interesting thing is because of the way the movie is constructed the two films are constructed as a single story and so therefore you have that moment of like here's the midpoint when Casino Royale ends it doesn't end it just stops for a moment and so it's interesting because there's no characterization there's there's very little characterization there's very little emotional stakes that are constantly raised and things like that throughout um, I mean, it's a little bit in Quantum of Solace. And you watch it, and, you just, and it, it kind of feels... But the action is off the chain. And it's really maybe... it's it's it, if it walks a really great line between the campiness of, like, the Roger Moore to the, to the weird coolness of the Pierce Brosnan. And it's earthy and muscular in... Uh, this quantum of solace. It's like that. There's a chase scene, and they're fighting in a bull. In a, in a, it's like a bull race. No, it's a, some sort of horse race in Italy, and they're running around through like rooftops, and there's this big fight in this like scaffolding, and it's 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 more it's more out of control than what you'd see in like these most recent Mission Impossible films, and even the Bourne stuff. And it's still, and this, and this is like, you know, movies fifteen years old, movies whatever, ten, fifteen years old. At least it's both over ten years old. But it's fascinating because kind of a solace. It it draws everything story wise, like like every story point is drawn from um, Casino Royale. It's almost like it, you can't even really watch the movie unless you've seen unless you've seen um, Casino Royale, and it's and you and, and you don't even really you remember what's happening emotionally, like the, when Vesper dies, you know, when Eva Green dies in the end of um, Casino Royale, and don't get me talking about Eva Green because I'll talk we'll talk about her in a little bit, but. Um, it's just it's, you should go back and watch those two movies back to back. They're not directed by the same filmmakers. Uh, it's, you know, it's um, the guy who did Monsters Ball did uh, Quantum of Solace, and um, I forget who did Casino Royale. Offhand, I just my mind's blanking. Just so many films in my head, but it's interesting to see this the what's going on. It's just like to see how what filmmakers do. I mean, in terms of like, like, what are you brought in to achieve? What is the story trying to do? How are you servicing the story as a filmmaker? How are you getting that out of your actors? Um, you know, it, like those are two interesting films that I think you should go back and revisit if you're interested in the spy film. Because I, mean, I remember seeing a movie a couple of years ago called Red Sparrow. And I was kind of like, oh, the spy film is dead. Like, like they can't do these. I, I, I always yearn to have seen, like, a spy film done by Tony Scott, or even by Ridley Scott, or even by Steven Spielberg. Um, and, I mean, those espionage stories is what I mean, not just a spy film, because Bridge of Spies is a spy film. But 
it's one of those things where um, I, I Red Sparrow was so like so lackluster, like it didn't work. And now here's these movies from before that were so like so gripping to me as 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 a as a, as a, as a viewer. And I guess there's a new movie out now called Ava that came out this week. It was supposed to come out theatrically, but obviously it's but it's been put to the video streams. Uh, stars Jessica Chastain and Common and uh, John Malkovich and uh, Colin Farrell, where she plays an, an operative who's kind of on the lamb on the run. I mean, obviously you've all seen that story, but it looks interesting because it's a spy thriller with a woman. Not to say those are done like well yet, um, so we'll see. Uh, you know, because you can kind of like. The good thing is, is that you don't need as much. Uh, you don't have to build as much out now with a spy, with a spy thriller with a woman as the we like the way they had to do with like you know like Long Kiss Goodnight. They spent a lot of time trying to build you into believing that Gina Davis like could be this killing machine. Whereas now you just like accept it. Um, but it's interesting to have seen like and this is another movie that came out or the, the rhythm section with Blake Lively. Um, that didn't work either, and it was an Aeon film. Again, the guys who do James Bond, and it's kind of like, do they not know how to do anything but a Bond film? Um, I don't know. I, it's, it's, I mean, you know, it's, I just, I thought that movie, like, it was missing some level of vitality in it, and I think it was based on a novel. Um, I mean, there's an interesting novel I was looking at the other day by Valerie Plame, who was a CIA operative that. That uh, Dick Cheney he, he outed her publicly, and I don't know why he didn't go to jail for that. Oh, I know why, because Obama and his Justice Department didn't want to prosecute anybody from the Bush administration. And I really, really hope that Biden doesn't take that same bitch out move and he and he prosecutes as many people as possible, like from the Trump administration. Oh, I have to take a little break right now. Just. You know, a word from our sponsor about voting. So anyway, I'm back. I wanted to talk with you about the next thing that um, the I don't know what's next up filmmaking wise. I have still haven't seen Tenet. I was gonna go today, but I didn't go. Uh, I just I feel like it was just too risky. I was having a contract negotiated today on Sunday um, and I was like do I really want to go to risk it when something so fascinating is going to happen in the next week um, it just seemed too risky but anyway I'm trying to think of what else is going on that might people you might find interesting to talk about in the writing game. it just you know, feels like this you know there's always this thing on film Twitter and TV Twitter about you know what are the 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 writer's room of the show called 2020 you know I'm gonna throw at us next and I have the best the best thing that is the post election twist that just put, takes us to the to the season finale just like upends us to no end Clarence Thomas leaves office his Supreme Court seat doesn't matter who wins the election. What happens? It doesn't matter what happens at all. The Senate will still be will be in Mitch McConnell's control, and and McConnell and Trump can get one more pick and put some younger person who's extra right 
like wing and it won't be a black person for sure up on the bench and that just is what I think is going to happen <laughs> that's what I would do if I was writing a political show and it was about what's going on now unfortunately I'm trying to think of what else I haven't watched any, much any television at all um, well I've watching this show called Tehran on Apple uh, it's a spy show and it's, it's an Israeli show and I really like that Israeli show called Fauda a lot but I realized that one of the things about these Israeli shows there's another one a Mossad show Mossad, Mossad 101 which are which is both on Netflix Fauda and Mossad 101 um, it's almost like they don't have enough story in their episodes like their episodes are stretched out like Tehran is 45 or 48 minute episodes but it feels like it really should only be 30 minutes and I say that because like Fauda was like 30 minute episodes and it felt like they should have been like 15 or 20 and found what they felt there's a, there's a lot of like breathing space in the editing where, this, where story was missing where if it was an American show they'd be filling it with story maybe filling it with additional kind of like backstory motivations and 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 all these things for all this this the, the second and tertiary characters which I don't see in this show Tehran which I still think is an interesting show I mean I watched two episodes and it was really cool I mean the la- like for instance like in the last maybe eight minutes of second episode of Tehran it's just kind of like zigzagging up and down like it's not moving forward it's just, you know, it's like if you think of it as like a frequency wave, just going up and down, up and down, not going in the line until the last, like, you know, minute and a half. You're like, oh, shit. But it's like, that's what I mean by there's just not enough story. There needs to have been some other stuff in there. Um, it's interesting just, I think, to, to look at these kind of shows and and see how people who have, like, they've elevated the game production-wise to meet uh, the Hollywood standard. Um, and they've tried to reach what we're doing with, with stories too, uh, but I, it's not quite there. I mean, that's why I'm curious to see what, when I watch that show called Zero Zero Zero, which I think is going to be up next. See what those guys can do. Although I know there was an American guy who was kind of involved in like setting up that room, um, and maybe he was able to do some other stuff. I don't really know. I, I, I have to watch that and take a look at it. Um, I don't know what else. I really don't know what else is going on. Um, I've been so caught up in like trying to finish a movie and try to finish the ticker project, which I did finish the editing on. I just want to go back and redo the titles. You ever noticed how like t- like digital titles don't feel like they're integrated into the image? You know, you go back and look at a title. Uh, when the when the, t- the the titling goes over an image, and movies in like the seventies and eighties, where because they're using an optical printer process, to like it's they're they're melding it in there. But whenever I watch digital titles, like they it feels like it's on top of it, like it's not integrated into the piece, and it almost feels like a if it, it kind of discon- disconcerted me. I mean, that, I think that's one of the reasons why you see. I mean, for me, maybe why there's so many titles over black. Because uh, it doesn't, but then, but that's when it looks. That's when it stands out even more. 
So I say that because that's something that I got to figure out what to do on my titles, just to kind of like go into After Effects and like break it up and add some sort of blur. Maybe it's like a drop shadow. Or I don't know, maybe some sort of grain. Like it's just something I remember looking at when I was looking at. Um, I was looking at the other day. I was looking at Goonies and just looking at the way the titles come on. Um, yes, one of these things is that you, is you, at least for me, I kind of fetishize when I look at films. Is like how are the titles done? Um, it just it, it's a way to really make titles. This is part of the storytelling process. Part of your it's part of your your the object you're giving to the audience to watch. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't matter anymore, you know, with the streaming stuff where everything is going to streaming. I was telling my friend Ariel today that I feel like I feel like I'm a Catholic who can no longer go to church when I can't go to the to, to the movies. She was like, I don't know that you go to church on Sundays. I was like, I don't go to church on Sundays. I go to the movie theater on Sundays. And I don't and I haven't been able to do that in the last six, seven months and I miss it so in 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 endearably. Um it's just unbelievable how I'm so so blase about movies and T V and all of it because I don't have the the opportunity to do the ritual of going to the theater. Um, and just being like of like a wash and all that. Yeah, I mean the other night I was watching Social Network because I wanted to put in and take a look at something, and I had cranked up the volume like super high, and it was just like pounding because I just because I have a pretty good sound system. And I forgot how dope that Atticus, I mean that score, that Trent Reznor score, where and Atticus Ross was just so pounding and so much bass was like rattling the floor. It was dope. It was really really dope. But it's like few and far between. Um, I'm just trying to like I don't know I think I'm going to watch a movie tonight I might watch Argo tonight another spy movie or spy adjacent film um, there was a spy, there was a podcast about spy movies that I was listening to at first I'm going to watch listen to an episode um, maybe I'll listen to that too but you know what I said I want to talk about oh craft thing so why you know a friend of mine he, he sent me a script to read and I only read like the first 15 pages and I'm giving him like notes like maybe 8 paragraphs of notes in the first 15 pages and I'm just going to tell him that it's like I'm not going to even read the rest and um, I kind of feel like he's going to get insulted well I know he's going to get insulted but, I can, but the thing is is that the story the story might be good it really might be a good story it started to pick up around page 10 like I got interested in it on page 10 but you see how that's the problem? I what takes me ten pages to get interested on it. Like I, I was reading it out of obligation, and it, by the time you got to page ten, I was just starting to. So I was starting to like see the the see it come together, and it wasn't like some puzzle piece type of of story. And I just realized I was like, he doesn't have me interested in his writing style, you know, his voice. Or the character, or the character's point of view on something in the world. Like I mentioned, like there's a great, you know, like opening monologue in Michael Clayton, where uh, Arthur Edens is just rambling for like I think it's a half a page, maybe even longer than a page, but it's at least half a page in the beginning. 
and he's just like giving you his POV of the world and you it's so well crafted that you just like what is I, you know I need to know more it's all about that it's like I need to know more and this guy was writing an action film, and like I even was like said, if you look at the the opening the opening page of Scorn, which is the original title for Jack for John Wick, like you know, like Hilliard always talks about, does there need to be a sense of curiosity in the scenes in the writing to drag me through? Like I need to know what's going to happen next. I need to know what's going to happen to her next, or what is going on here. And there's like, and and right at the end of the last maybe three eighths of a page of Scorn, John Wick, the the writer does that. He brings you in. And he asks you some questions. He makes you ask some questions about what's happening. I mean, he does that terrible thing of where he starts the script off with someone waking up out of bed, but it's important to what that story is about. And it's interesting because that kid, John Wick is in his 60s in that script. He's not the young 48-year-old, I guess, that, that, that Keanu Reeves was when he, or whatever, in, in his 40s when and then Keanu Reeves did uh, the first John Wick. And it's just, it's part of what happens where, and my friend's script is jumble. He has something happen on the first page which he thinks is interesting, and it's not because it's it's like a black man getting arrested. And there's no doubt you just see it getting arrested. And I was kind of like, that's so commonplace that it doesn't, it doesn't like, it doesn't evoke anything. But you could have made it interesting by having this guy be, you know, like maybe there's voiceover, or maybe he's talking to the cop in a certain way, or or maybe he's yanked out of a, he's yanked out of a place where it's like this is the person who should not be getting arrested. Something to make me go, well, what happened? What happened? What is happening to this guy before, and what's happening now? You know, like, be you know, there's a there's an interesting book by, uh, I don't know, his last name is Iglesias. He teaches screenwriting at UCLA. He always talks about how every act needs to have a question. And then you break it down further into, like, you know, if you break down every act into, like, a beginning, middle, and end, so there's three sections in every act, and then there's three sections in every three sections, you should be asking a question in every section, because that that level of oh like you gotta like you the writer have to pose a question in the audience's mind so they keep reading because they want to know what the answer to that question is and that doesn't mean you answer the question you know like the the, the answer of the the first act question doesn't need to be answered in the first act you because it just makes you go oh is this gonna happen it's gonna happen it's gonna happen to him it's gonna happen to her it's gonna happen to her and then you might now be asking another question as you transition into the second act but 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 writing with the idea of understanding that you have to be posing putting questions in the audience's mind is important for you to keep your story engaging because now you are like making the audience like audiences like Andrew Stanton was you know he always talks about that audiences don't want you to tell them that two plus two equals four. What they want you to do is say two plus two equals that's the question, right? Two plus two equals or if you're really wild you do like two plus x equals four. Solve for x audience. Do you know how to solve for X audience? Like that's the like, like that's like a film noir type of like storytelling piece of mathematics. 
um, and certain writers like Tony Gilroy always talks about how, how writing is like math and it's like yeah it is there it is like it's these, 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 these quadratic equations that you are like constructing as, as as a storyteller because that's how you engage the audience because it's like well, what's the answer to that question motherfucker keep reading and find out anyway uh, I'll let you know if the guy is upset because when I tell him I'm, I'm actually going to read the first act and then That'd be it. I'll just tell him, you know, Sarah, that, that's, this is my assessment of it. And the reason why I don't care what happens in Act 2 and 3 is because he hasn't set up his movie right. His movie doesn't tell me enough about what the character's arc potentially could be in the opening pages. So opening three to five, those opening three pages are so critical. It's, there's so much time you have to spend on those three pages when you. That's why those guys, the like uh, John and Craig and Scribnos, they do a three-page challenge because they're letting you know that how important are page one, two, and three to get any reader hooked, <clears throat> because the reader wants your script to be good. He wants your script to be good because he's read so much bad shit today, bad shit this week, bad shit this year, bad shit his whole time out here reading. So he, when he, so when your script comes across his desk, he's hoping it is good, and he knows if it's gonna. He knows by the end of page one, oh, I might be in good hands, it, you know. And then two to three, oh, I am in good hands. Oh, by the end of page three, it's like, oh shit, now where are we going? But that involves a lot of understanding of the craft of getting the character set up right, it's, and 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 presenting this presenting the scene ordering the right way. Like, I think this guy, he just kind of like, um, you know, there's a lot of characters introduced in the, in the opening and it's, and the scenes are kind of jumbled and out of order and there's a lot of like, you know, like a meteor ray going on with people's relationships and it's kind of like, spend the time to teach the audience who they're going to spend time with. Like, I was telling this guy in my notes, I was like, think about Die Hard. Think about the credit sequence in Die Hard. The credit sequence in Die Hard, which is, and it's, a, it's an innocuously thinking, oh, I'm just telling you the credits. But I said a whole time with, like, you know, John McClane is coming to California and he's coming to Los Angeles and he's driving with Argyle and Argyle's questioning him about his his whole relationship with, like, you know, with Holly and everything like that. And you get so much of an understanding of who this guy is, this testosterone-fueled guy who he's not really touched with his emotions the right way, who drove his wife away because she wanted to have, like, a sense of, like, self, which meant, which, mean, which meant being somewhat independent for her job. And he couldn't handle it. So you're saying to yourself, we, I, I, the moment when he gets out of the thing with Argyle, and Argyle's like, I'm going to wait here for you. You're saying to yourself, is he going to be able to solve that? He thinks that his, he thinks that coming here and being a certain way to win his wife back and through some domestic like activity that suits her thing is how he can win his wife back. And we know through the movie that it's not it. He has to lean into who he really is even more to get his wife, you know. And it's an interesting kind of like story, like like what is the why what is it telling you? But it's but all that's kind of set up there in the first opening pages. It's like it's a masterclass in the efficiency of like storytelling and and scene ordering, like the, the ordering that you put the scenes together means so much for the audience. 
the reading audience, let me put it that way, the reading audience to understand your story. The movie audience is not who you have to like impress when you're when you're writing screenplay. You don't have to impress him because he's never going to read your script. He's going to see the movie, and that's the director who has now told your story, and he has decided in a way he might be reordering your movie because he's shooting it. Going well, shoot these scenes and reorder in the editing room and see how the see how the audience understands what's happening. That's where like the writing and the filmmaking and the collaboration is different that's why the writing is all about clarity because there's no faces to like answer things like if I, if I start flashing faces at you in these kind of quick conversations blah 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 on the page you're lost but if that's you know Julia Roberts and uh, George Clooney and you know and, and you know and, and, and uh, you know and Michelle and you know like you know, just all these people like all these actors once their faces start filling out who those characters are, I can like introduce like this massive ensemble on screen. It's hard to do that on page because of the way that you know this is the lack of clarity. Like who are all these people? I've never been. I've never met them before, and they're not described in a way where you would like in a novel. I like, spend a lot of time with everyone as you meet them. Um, so it's these things that you have to worry about when you're writing a screenplay it's about clarity and efficiency of of the efficiency of, of how you present that clarity I don't know so that's going to be it for today um, if you have any questions then you need to send an email to screenwritersrr at uh, gmail.com or to screenwriters rantroom at gmail.com uh, go to the website go to the website screenwritersrr.com yeah I'm pretty sure it's screenwritersrr at gmail.com and you can ask us questions or go to the website screenwritersrr.com and there'll be a contact page and you can ask us questions there too because that's linked to the, the email where people who answer questions answer questions and while you're at the website you can support the show. There'll be links to our Patreon page. What's well, because the Patreon page have to show people right now? There's multiple tiers now. There's new tiers. There's a two, a five, eight, and ten dollar tier. I believe the t- ten dollar tier is like this little booklet called from. It's a WJ booklet. It's out of print. It's called from from from, from, from uh, the staff writer, the showrunner, or free, freelance writer, the showrunner. It's this book that uh, a bunch of like showrunners. Uh, were interviewed and they talk about the pathway the, the the pathway to move up the ranks what's it expected of you you know the, the you know the the job requirements uh, the, the, the as a writer as a non-writing producer what are these these producing requirements it's a very comprehensive book it's like 60 pages that's on there for like 8 bucks uh, I think I have it a up where this is the, if enough people could do the $8 a month thing uh, there'll be a, a special bottle episode every month. Um, I've already recorded the one for October, so uh, if, if anyone signs up for it, then they'll get that. At, you know, uh, they'll they'll get that, which has a whole lot of other stuff in there. Um, but support the show; it'd be good for us during this pandemic, so we can like keep things going and keep things excited for you and get the right guests that we need and everything like that. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to Ryan Canty for supporting the show. I'm going to give a shout out to Jeff Thorne for supporting the show. I want to give a shout out 
to Kip Clemens for supporting the show, to uh, to Nicole Sylvester, all of you guys who are supporting the show, you are going to be on the upcoming, you know, um, uh, support Hall of Fame that is going to be on the website. So everyone is going to know who has been helping the show out and has been instrumental in keeping us going. Um, a few of the people who I want to hit up is I'm going to hit up and give thanks to Rob Greenspan for helping the show to Sonny. Now you know who you are and you're and you've been helping the show to Joseph, um, 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 Joseph, Joseph OKG for helping the show, Scott Beck and Brian Woods for supporting the show, for Gesha Gesha Marie Bland for supporting the show, for TJ Barry. I have already said TJ Barry, but thank you, but thank you guys all for supporting the show. Um, there is uh, there's a new T-shirt because there's a new logo. If you've been looking, following this, you see there's a new logo for Screenwriters Rent Room, and there's T-shirts for that too. And there's going to be a 1619 T-shirt as well. Um, and a 1619 uh, coffee mug that'll be up um, within the next week. So keep checking back on the website. There'll be a link to the store. You can get those there. Um, just you know, we're just we're trying to just trying to do new stuff. Um, and then you can reach us on social media at Screenwriters RR. Um, is the Twitter handle? You can ask us questions there. You can reach me at c at uh, at, at, uh, at unauthorized CBD on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I, I guess that's kind of it. You know, go watch some interesting TV shows and, and tell me an interesting show I should be watching because uh, I don't know what to watch right now. Um, so that's how we do it today in the rant room. We just keep it real, keep it opinionated, and keep it a uh, Wakanda forever. And we will be back with a bunch of people next week. Peace, y'all. I'm going to say what I feel. And I promise to keep it real. Welcome to the Red Room. Well, you gotta be a rider Till your fears are diminishing The doubts are behind ya It's hard to grind And the business got me stressed In the rent room We let that shit up off our chest You know the street nerd has got no time for no caca Sass in class Yes, that's Mr. Bolakaja Never have to guess When you're listening to Hilliard He gon' bring more game Than a shark playing billiards It's all about the crap of screenwriting It's exciting when you turn an outline Into something enlightening Your pen and words Are like bullets in a gun Write what you feel Say what you want Welcome to the rent room